doing back there? I've always been a student of comparative religion. The Pentecostals present a number of points of interest. How much dope are you doing? <laughs> this month, my financial condition has prevented certain journeys of the imagination. Good. We're back in business. I really got somebody for us this time. Janie, would you meet my old friend Poe? Fix up your cuts, bruises, all sorts of good things. I have two years of medical school to recommend me. Two years doesn't make a doctor. Well, in my third year of studies, a small black cloud appeared on campus. I left under it. What he's trying to say is that he's a dyed wool hophead. I have a weakness for opium. It's a habit that's hard to quit. Some are born to fail, others have it thrust upon them. I saw it on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with a little bit of background thrown in on the actors, information about the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please Go out, give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. This week, we are continuing August month-long theme, Over the Hill. That's our selection of some fantastic Walter Hill features that we hope you too will love. This week, we are screening the 1975 tough-as-nails bare-knuckle boxing ballet that is hard times. Join us! So once again, this week we are featuring a film that was introduced to me by the mighty Xerxes. Circa, nah, sometime around the fall of 2002. Had to be knocking on December because we were discussing the late great James Coburn, who had recently then passed away, and we're just talking about some of our favorite films that he had been in. I was throwing out stuff like In Like Flint and The Great Escape, whereas, and as was the norm, Xerxes was bringing up all kinds of Coburn roles that I had never seen. And soon we had shifted to talking about this week's film, with Xerxes selling me on the action that came from the partnership between a rough and world-weary fighter played by Charles Bronson and, of course, a fast-talking fight promoter who will stake him in a bunch of bare-knuckle brawls, which, of course, would end up being played by James Coburn. Or, as it was at least sold to me, it's great. You got Bronson being this guy who just comes into town who wants to make some quick cash, and he wants to move on, you know? And that's when Coburn is all like, what do you mean you want to leave? You got more guys to fight. 
I was also told, jokingly of course, that the purse would be like 10 bucks in a ham sandwich, and I should so see it. And by then I was already hooked into the concept. You know, shut up, take my money. I, I get it. So what do I do? Well, like normal, I go down to the mom and pop video store, I secure myself a rental, and I got to take in a rather interesting film back in my dorm room. A movie about fighting, but not really. It's more that it's a film that's a focus on some really great character development, or at least a look at character archetypes. The kind that you would find in classic noir films, but characters that are mainly set to be background, like your second and third banana rolls, except now we're focusing the story on them and they are becoming our heroes. Except in this case, it would become the main focus. It's gritty. The pacing is all over the place, I have to give you that. but. It's compelling, and the fights are oddly bloodless, at least for the most part. So what you get is this great little period piece that's actually wildly entertaining. So in short, I loved it. And when I had the means, I went out and secured a copy of the film for my own use, and then of course I tried to get other people to watch it, hence why I'm talking to you now. So picking up from what we were talking about last week, the opportunity for Hill to make this film directly stemmed from the success that had come with his previous screenwriting for both the films Hickey and Boggs, as well as The Getaway. Hill was hot. His name was starting to be bandied about by people of power, and as the young screenwriter made no secret that he wanted to direct, he would be willing to write his own stories to even get that accomplished. Luckily for him, he got to meet a man who was willing to take chances on first-time directors. Now, we've talked about this before, but at the time, Larry Gordon, producer extraordinaire, was just finishing up his tenure running production over at American International Pictures during the Arkoff solo period of the 1970s. We had mentioned Gordon on previous episodes, Arkoff 2 for that matter, but before he would go on to become a powerful solo act of a producer himself, Larry Gordon served under Arkoff first at AIP during the early 70s, right when they were expanding into other genres. They were delivering on some solid B-movie fun, by way of kung fu films, action stories, and a bunch of gangster pictures, as well as a number of rather fantastic blaxploitation features. By 1974, Gordon would end up jumping ship to move over to a more mainstream production with Columbia Pictures, essentially taking over for them, doing exactly what he was doing at AIP, being able to come up with a bunch of bankable, low-budget films to shore up losses from larger, budgeted bombs. And that's right around the time that he met the up-and-coming Hill. Now, Gordon viewed writers who got to direct as both a boon from his time helming productions over at AIP. You need to get things done on the cheap. And partly it was a cost-saving effect because you didn't have to pay a writer-director that much. The honor of directing was so intoxicating, you can pay them a low cost for both, and you got the best out of them. As Hill would later state in an interview with the Directors Guild of America, Hill figured it couldn't be as bad as what they made when he was coming from AIP, so what exactly did he have to lose? And thus, Hill found himself polishing up an idea that Gordon had been floating around for quite some time. 
Gordon had a screenplay called The Street Fighter, which was originally penned by Brian Gindoff and Bruce Henstel. It was a story about a drifter, a street fighter who would make his living and his way through the world going from town to town, fight to fight. Now, for Hill, while he got the story, he felt that the modern setting just wasn't working for him. You know, why is someone doing this in modern day, and why are they doing it in San Pedro, California? And so Hill took the story, took the aspects that he liked, and he changed the venue, and he moved it from San Pedro, and instead set it far back in time, well, far back in time being relative, the 1930s Depression era, changing it to New Orleans, a much rougher time, when the concept of desperate men fighting for money would be a little easier to understand to the mass audience. To Hill's credit as a writer, Gordon loved it, and the project was given the green light to have Hill come on board and direct it as his first picture. But the swapping of the story venue and the time period also necessitated change of a name, and thus the Street Fighter was now going to be dubbed Hard Times. Now, if you're going to do a picture like this, you need to get yourself an amazing cast. And here is where the first problems started to occur. Nobody could agree on who should be in this film. Hill, for his part, wanted to work with actors that he liked and respected. And again, taking a cue from Peckinpah, he wanted sort of a young, dashing lead for his street-fighting vagabond, Cheney. To Hill, actor Ryan O'Neill, who was hot off doing Love Story, was just the perfect choice. For the fast-talking hustler who forges a partnership as Cheney's manager, Hill wanted a very dependable Warren Oates, who had just finished working on some stellar films for Peckinpah, uh, including his brutally nihilistic and, of course, a future episode, 1974 classic Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Columbia, though, didn't see it this way. They didn't care what Hill wanted. They wanted stars. They wanted big names, and they would go on to overrule Hill and go forward with casting Charles Bronson as the lead and James Coburn as his manager and partner, Speed. Now, I'm going to pause here, interrupt myself for a moment. I really, really love me some Charles Bronson for a host of reasons that I will save for a later date. And since I want to actually do him justice, I'm not going to get actively into his background and his filmography at this time. But I just want to address it in general. I know that I'm going to be giving him some short shrift here, and that's only because I want to dig in and give the devil his due later. Now all that said, something I will say about the man at this time. If you were filming a movie with Charles Bronson in the 1970s, he was huge. 1971 Hollywood Foreign Press Association named Charles Bronson the most popular actor in the world, and he milked that fact for all it was worth. Bronson at that time was able to regularly command salaries of around a million dollars a throw, plus he would often get points on the back end of the pictures he made. He would also, during this time period, insist that his wife at the time, actress Jill Ireland, would be cast in the films with him, and that would often lead to problems, as it did on this picture. Because they would come as a package deal, and then directors and producers would have to find work for her to do. So, saying all that, stick that in your back pocket, and we'll get to more of that later. 
Now, here's the irony. Between the director and the two leads, actually, I misspoke. We're going to say three leads here. Between the director and the three leads, all of them either wanted somebody else or wanted to be working with different people or wanted to be working on a different project. For Hill, Bronson was simply too old, or at least as of this time, before the days of Bronson cranking out all those marvelous cookie-cutter action films that he did for canon in the 80s, he was certainly seeming to be long in the tooth. We didn't know exactly how long he was going to keep going on. Now, I can see it. When you youngsters imagine him, I'm sure you're thinking of the craggy, slow-walking guy with the mustache who would just shoot up a bunch of armed hoodlums from one project to another. Not the most physical of actors in his later days. But this was, at least to put it in context, Bronson probably at the tail end of his physical peak. And even though he was 52 years old at the time this film was shot, he was all hard-edged, wiry muscle here. There's not an ounce of fat or doughiness to be found here when you look at him. Hill had to admit to himself that Bronson was indeed an impressive specimen and, you know, could actually do a lot of these fights and could really convey it well, with one slight problem. Charles Bronson was a lifelong smoker, and I know, not shockingly, he would go on to die from complications due to lung cancer, but because of this, he would get winded on set very easily. As Hill would put it, looking back years later, he probably could have kicked everybody's ass on that movie, but he just couldn't fight them for longer than 30 or 40 seconds. So this would make staging fights really interesting. Bronson would go really, really hard, and then they'd have to cut because he would start sucking wind. Not exactly what you want when you're filming an action movie. I mean, can you imagine The Rock doing that nowadays? Hmm. Now for his part, Bronson didn't want to make this film either. He didn't hate the script, he liked actually the story, but he thought the entire exercise was beneath him. He felt he had put in his dues at least by this time, and this sort of story was sort of silly for an actor of his perceived caliber to be taking. That's going to be a point that we'll have to discuss at another time. Bronson didn't like working with new people. He would often keep to himself on set, he'd hang out with his wife back in their trailer. When he's not working on the picture, he's gone. This was real trouble for Hill, but it wasn't the same level of trouble that he would get from James Coburn. Provided I'm not missing anything else, this would be the fourth time Bronson and Coburn would be working together. They had both come up starring in television, and they had done episodes on Tales from Wells Fargo together in 1957. Then they went on to star as members of The Magnificent Seven in 1960, fantastic film, and then they reteamed yet again as POWs in 1963's The Great Escape. Coburn, at this point, had stopped doing a lot of side character work himself, and he had helmed his own pictures, such as the Flint spy comedies, I had already mentioned one of them previous, and he had done a very classic Sergio Leone western, Duck You Sucker, aka Fistful of Dynamite at this time. And while he was still well regarded as an actor, in the mid-1970s, Coburn himself was experiencing a bit of a slump. He had made a bunch of movies, but a lot of them were bombs. He still, though, felt he was 
actually a lead, and this would go on to cause a lot of tension on set, both between Coburn and Bronson. Since, as Hill put it, Coburn didn't want to be second banana to anybody, and that would trickle down, with Coburn, instead of battling with his co-star, he instead would take out his frustrations on the first-time director. Now, Ireland was hired to play the love interest, Lucy Simpson, for Bronson to be a part of the aforementioned deal. For her part, as well as her career in film in general, while being Charles Bronson's wife did get Ireland access roles to parts she might not have taken initially, unlike her husband, Ireland was a multifaceted actress, and she inhibited roles with dignity and grace. Her turn here as a down-and-out woman is quite well done, and I don't mean to make this seem like this was some sort of weird nepotism where she does not deserve to be on screen. Ireland, for her part in this film, does a really great job. The third star that would end up giving Hill some trouble was actor Strother Martin. He was cast to take on the role of Poe, the heroin-addicted Cutman who teams up with Speed and Chaney to help keep the fighter healthy. Martin had really been in so much at this point. I mean, think about it. You got him in Cool Hand Luke as the head jailer. Famous line, you know, what we have here is a failure to communicate. He also shows up in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He shows up in The Wild Bunch. He was in some amazing films. And as an actor, he had been everywhere and done everything. So much so that as a character actor, he would often push back or balk when Hill would tell him what to do. And this caused a problem until the younger man pointed out that unlike the two main leads, he could be replaced. And after that, it was smooth sailing from Martin. But he's just the tip of the spear when you get into the character actors that we have in this film. Because you have Broadway actor Michael McGuire playing the villainous Chick Gandal, stuntman and actor Robert Tessier, amazing guy. He spent two solid decades playing heavies. He shows up here as Gandal's top fighter, Jim. Bruce Glover, Crispin Glover's dad and famous Bond villain, he shows up as a scene-stealing, playing a small-time mob loan shark, Doty. Plus, you have Nick Dimitri here as the big Chicago fighter, Street, who comes in to try to settle things. And you also have a young Frank McRae showing up here as hired muscle. You have a nice cast of toughs, all done by a decent group of actors, and they make this period piece really work, at least if you ask me my opinion on it. Now, according to Hill, the budget for this film was set at $2.7 million, which for a studio picture of this time, it was not massive, but it was still nothing to sneeze at back in the day either. The bulk of the filming would happen on location in New Orleans, with minor pickup shots done in Los Angeles and San Antonio. Hill planned out his shots, hedged his bets, and personally worried about looking stupid in advance of shooting his first film. He would keep going back to look on his prep work, and he would really worry about how everything was going to come together. And in looking back on it, he got some great advice from cameraman Phil Lathrop about making the picture. Lathrop had taken him aside and told the director, don't worry, the film's going to get made. They're going to get the shots that they need, and Hill was way ahead of where many other directors before him were even at this point when they were making a movie. 
What Lathrop did tell him, though, is Hill's job was going to be dealing with all the problems that come from getting everybody on set just to get along and to give him what he needs to get as a director. And as Hill stated, Lathrop was 100% correct. As exhilarating as it was for Hill to finally get to be behind the camera, the 38 days that it would take to make this film, and as he started in September of 1974, he quickly realized that Lathrop had nailed it. As most of those 38 days, Hill's time and energy would be spent battling with his stars, attempting to soothe their egos, convince, cajole them, or try to diffuse their anger as the project rolled on. Coburn would openly try to give direction to the director. He would tell Hill how they should stage things, how they should block the scenes, how the dialogue should be as they would go on filming. Famously, he would get into it with Hill over the scene where the entire gang gets fleeced in Cajun country. Hill had set up for the day and was ready to start filming the fight scene and the aftermath, and that's when Coburn stepped in and wanted to change the camera setup, the staging, and all of the shots they blocked. Hill wound up in a shouting match with Coburn over the situation, throwing his script across the set and losing his cool in front of everyone. Now, to his credit, at least on the shoot, Bronson would often not involve himself in fights, but Bronson was not happy about being there to begin with. Still, Bronson didn't like Coburn telling the director how things should be on Bronson's film, and so, at least as a stroke of luck for the first-time director, Bronson would end up backing Hill, and in this case, he told Coburn, we should do it Hill's way. Coburn, not pleased but not wanting to get into it with Bronson, accepted it, throwing out a, fine, Charlie, if that's how you feel, fuck it. Now, even after completing the filming and moving into post-production, Hill couldn't catch a break with his stars. They needed to trim a bunch of fat from the movie, the original cut was well over two hours, and Hill ended up cutting away several of the fight scenes of Cheney and Speed making money, working with his editor, Robert Spotswood, to try to streamline this. Now, could they have done a montage? Could they have done something different? Yeah, probably. They could have used that fight footage, but they opted instead to just keep the fights sparse. You only really see three fights in the lead up to them making their big money. What they did, though, was to cut a bunch of the scenes between Cheney and Lucy because some of those were longer dialogue scenes and they needed to get the story rolling. And thus, the interaction between Bronson and Ireland feels very fleeting. And this ended up further angering star Bronson, who thought that the work between him and his wife was some of the best work he had done on this film in general. Regardless, what became was a leaner, but still in my own opinion, a little bit too long of a movie that's clocking in still over 90 minutes, but at least was well crafted. Now, it was released to the public the following year on October 8th of 1975. And while I could get into a little bit more, folks, you've been ever so patient with me prattling on about all of this. How's about this? I'll stop my yapping and we'll get to that trailer. What do you say? I knock people down. Just gonna be like a prize fighter? No, they're pickup fights. The 
money's made on bets. 1933, America had hit the skids. People were out of work and out of luck. Life was as tough as a cheap steak. Boys have been down the long, hard road. Who has it? It was hard times. I got a husband in jail. No job and no prospects. I don't look past the next bend in a road. Columbia Pictures presents Hard Times. Starring Charles Bronson as Cheney, a drifter. When I get enough change in my pocket, I'm going. A loner. Are you going to stay the night? Not this time. A man who spoke soft. I barely know you. Yeah, but would you like to? And hit hard. James Coburn as Speed, a born con man. All side bets, I keep 75%. That's how it works. Who can make a fortune in a day. I propose to toast to the best man I know. Me. And lose it in a minute. What the hell are you doing? You don't want no trouble. Just you pay your debts. Speed was the hustler. Cheney was the hitter. Together, they just couldn't be beat. Charles Bronson and James Coburn, together, they're a knockout. In hard times. In 1933, a quiet drifter named Cheney, as played by Charles Bronson, catches a ride into a Texas town, where he witnesses an underground bare-knuckle boxing match take place between two men, and watches, interested, as the fast-talking fight promoter, Speed, as played by James Coburn, ends up getting soaked as his staked fighter loses the match. While Speed licks his wounds over a meal of beer and oysters, Cheney catches up with him and offers to be a fighter for Speed, provided, of course, that Speed makes bets on Cheney's behalf. Start any time, pal. Cheney. So what? We can make some money. Right, well, I'm all ears, friend. A piece of business tonight. You said enough? It happens all the time. Help yourself. Thanks. Suppose you've been down the long, hard road. Who hasn't? Sheriff? You a policeman? Just like to know where a man comes from, that's all. You look a little past it. Besides, I already got a hitter. Yeah, yeah, I saw him. Well, some bitch laid down on me tonight. Look, friend. Every town got a bar, every bar's got somebody who thinks he's tough as a nickel steak. But they all come to speed for the do re me. He's a bum, I'm the one that loses. I don't want you a dough. I got six bucks. And nothing else. You bet it. Speed is now intrigued, and he sets up a fight that evening for Cheney going up against the same boxer as before, and, true to his word, betting Cheney's six dollars for him. Cheney enters the ring and quickly lays out the other fighter with relative ease. Seeing dollar signs, Speed buys them tickets back to New Orleans, giving Cheney his money plus a ten dollar bonus, excited to start up a new partnership with the man. But he's gently rebuffed, as Cheney isn't exactly sure that's what he wants. Instead, he tells Speed that he's going to think about his offer and get back to him. Cheney ends up going off into the night and encounters a woman, Lucy, as played by Jill Ireland, in a diner, and he tries to talk to her. And while she attempts to rebuff him, 
his quiet, disarming manner allows him to walk her home. And from this encounter, Cheney seemingly decides it may be worth it to stick around in New Orleans, at least for the short term. Cheney returns in the morning to wake Speed and his fiancée up and agrees to partner with him. But he's going to end up getting the better end of the deal, because while Speed is indeed staking him, it's Cheney that's taking all the risks. Speed's not thrilled to deviate from what he considers to be the standard agreement, but there's just too much money at stake not to take Cheney up on his offer. Well, we go 50-50 uh, on all scratch bets and expenses. All side bets, I keep 75%. That's how it works. 60-40 in my favor on scratch side bets down the middle. I'm telling you the going rate. What's normal? Ask anybody. We'll do things different. Why should we? Because right now, my friend, you got a percentage of nothing. Well, that makes me even with you. I put up all the money. I take all the risks. All right, all right. All right, we'll do it your way. Kayleen! What's a man have to do to get some breakfast around here? We learn that Speed is a degenerate gambler, and that he's been borrowing money all over town to stake his various fighters, ducking some of his creditors when he can, and paying others off with loans on the fly. Openly angering local mob boss Doty, as played by Bruce Glover. Speed ends up borrowing even more money, at an even higher interest rate, all with the intent on setting up a few fights to be able to then cover the larger spread, which will allow Cheney to buy into the area's largest fight against the well-appointed rival Chick Grandel, as played by Michael McGuire. And his monstrous bruiser, the undefeated champ Jim Henry, as played by Robert Tessier. But before any of this can actually happen, the duo needs to raise some real cash. Three grand, to be exact. Speed ends up getting in touch with an associate of his, a down-and-out former medical student turned heroin addict, Poe, as played by Strother Martin, who agrees for a very small percent of the bets to be the team's cut man and help clean Cheney up after fights, keep him healthy. The group end up traveling to Cajun country on the bayou to take on a mid-level hitter, but... When Cheney handily wins, the local stakeholder, LeBeau, is played by Felice Orlandi, refuses to pay them, and instead flashes a gun to get them to leave. Speed, of course, is livid, but Cheney and Poe calm them down and instead opt to do the smart thing, retreating to the car, where Cheney cryptically tells them, let's drive around for a bit and see the country. That night, they end up raiding LeBeau's pool hall, and after disarming the man and taking the money that they're owed, Cheney ends up shooting out a bunch of the facility's lights and its jukebox, causing extra damage to the joint before taking off back to New Orleans to celebrate. Now, flush with cash, Speed is able to buy his way into a fight against Chick and his man. Hey, old man, I'm gonna end this for you. Just keep smiling, Big Jim, or you still got some lips. When I get done with him, I'm coming after you, Big Shot. The only thing you're going to be coming after is a doctor. Jesus, I just saw it over there. $9,000 in a man's hand. <sighs> Enough to take your breath away. God, I'm getting going. We're ready over here. 
After a hard and protracted fight, Chaney comes out on top against Jim, causing the trio to happily celebrate, although Speed ends up running his mouth a little too much in the post-fight exchange, insulting Chick and his fighter, much to the gentleman's anger. They all go out to celebrate and have a good time with their ladies, but Speed just can't seem to help himself, and by the end of the night, he goes out and gambles his cut of the winnings, losing almost three grand with a couple throws of some dice. Speed is eager now to set up new fights for Cheney, but Cheney kind of wants to cool things down and relax a little bit. During the interim, Chick ends up calling the partners into his office, and he makes them an offer. He wants to buy in to controlling Cheney. After all, he's always had the best fighters in the city on his payroll. Money is no option here. But Cheney doesn't like the man, and lets him know it. He and Speed are partners. They don't need Chick, and they end up walking. Chick's response is to go around town and buy up all of Speed's debts. This is an act that will force him to convince Cheney to face off against yet another fighter that Chick has brought in. Speed, though, starts to become desperate and tries to force Cheney to fight for him, all the while accusing Cheney of taking advantage of him, telling him that he owes him for all that initial money he staked on him, and that ends up causing a riff and their partnership dissolves. When it becomes apparent that Speed can't convince Cheney to fight, Chick has the mob kidnap the promoter, with the expressed intent that he's only going to keep paying the interest on Speed's loans for a few more days' time. They're going to keep Speed on ice so that the man can't earn any money for himself to get out of Hawk. And it's all done with the intent to show that if Cheney doesn't bring his winnings and comes to face off against a fighter that Chick has procured, he will let the mob kill Speed as a public example for what happens when one doesn't pay off their debts. Poe learns of all of this and attempts to intervene, begging Cheney to come and intercede on behalf of their mutual friend. Gando come to see me. We have got a problem. You and me ain't got no trouble, Poe. I'm afraid we do. It's about our old friend's feet. He sent you? Don't even know I'm here. Me and Speed ain't related anymore. Things don't work that easy. He's in a lot of trouble. I ain't interested. Speed owes a ton to one of our local riffraff. They're putting the arm on him. Gando's gonna pay the loan off if you take on his man. No crowd, just business. You want me to bet my $5,000? It's all the money I got. They don't owe that goddamn Speed nothing. That's not the point. It's real simple. He's in the ring. You're the only one that can get him out. Money's hard to come by, Paul. At first, Cheney's reasoning is that he's done exactly what he said he would do. And he didn't cause Speed to rack up all of these debts around town. But as he goes and checks on Lucy, he finds that she's moving on without him, setting up shop with a more respectable man, and asking him not to come around and see her anymore. Without any ties to New Orleans... Cheney ends up showing up to fight Chick's selected man anyway, who turns out to be a brawler from Chicago named Street, as played by Nick Dimitri. A brutal, drag-out fight ensues, and while Chick wants his man to cheat, Street respects Cheney enough to give him a fair fight. And even though he loses to Cheney, he does it his way. 
Chick holds up his end of the bargain. He pays off all of Speed's various debts around town, and he thanks Cheney for being able to watch him work, paying the fighter almost ten grand for his troubles. As they walk out into the night, Cheney thanks his companions, and after requesting that Poe and Speed take care of themselves and look in on the cat that he's adopted, he gives them the bulk of his earnings, and then he heads off into the night to continue his travels throughout the country alone. Poe and Speed agree that they need to get out of New Orleans, and they go to pick up the cat and then continue their partnership down in Florida, commenting that this has been a hell of a time. Credits. Roll. So where do we even begin here? Well, how about this? What doesn't work with this picture? Frankly, the pacing. And it's exacerbated by the awkward romance that Cheney attempts to have with Lucy. But here, let's first at least throw out a compliment. The cast and a compliment to Hill. For starters, nobody is bad in their role by any stretch of the imagination. On paper, this all is a rather perfect fit for Bronson. The dialogue is minimal, he gets to do a lot of staring, the scenes where he sits alone and does small inconsequential things, like when he feeds a cat, washes a cup, gestures for more coffee wordlessly, that and other riveting actions, all in the lead up to then watching him get down to business and deliver some real rough combos to some hulking underground boxer's face. Honestly, Hill could have cut far more out of this film that involved Bronson. I don't need to know about how he picked up groceries for the day. I don't need to watch him sit quietly in his dingy apartment reading the newspaper. Scenes that don't move the plot forward and don't really give us anything on that character, other than to say, look, he's a man of little words and he doesn't do much when you don't see him on camera either. Now, I must point out, I consider myself to be fairly patient when it comes to watching a bunch of classic films. I get it. Pacing was different. And there's a lot of stuff here that can go. Because it doesn't help the story. Thus, again, not bad, but trim it away. And because of all that, and because I told you that, let me get back into now why I don't care at all about Cheney's romance with Lucy. Their scenes together are not bad. Again, I'd like to stress, Jill Ireland is a great actress. This is not a problem that has anything to do with her, not even with her interactions with Bronson. Rather, it's just how the edits were made. What director Hill here has decided to keep, and what he's decided to cut. The craftsmanship that Ireland brings doesn't work out because there's no real watershed moments. We don't get to see them having any sort of bonding. They're just always sitting quietly talking together. There's no smooching, and not that we need anything this explicit, but nobody sleeps together. Cheney is reduced to this guy that's just always walking around, walking Lucy home, and asking her if she wants to come out and have a cup of coffee from time to time with him. Because of the way this film is cut, there's no magic there left. It was all excised for sake of the film. So to me, honestly, if you're going to cut out anything that's meaningful, 
It should have just been cut out entirely. Hill kept what he could. But I would argue if you're going to remake this movie ever again, and I'm not saying they should, I would tell you flat out, leave out a love interest, especially if you're not going to do anything with them. Also, I'll throw in this, by cutting the number of fights, it makes the characters' conflicts with one another feel a bit superficial, or at least confusing. Speed is making real good money from the fights, and he's been playing it fast and loose across town. Not that that's out of character for him by any stretch, but if you showed more fights, or at least showed a montage to let us see that, oh, they've been having a lot of these and Speed is getting used to having money all the time, it at least makes his crazy, unwise spending logical, and it makes, you know, a difference as to why suddenly Speed seems so angry that he's going broke instantly, and that Cheney won't fight for him. It just looks like they go from 0 to 60 without any in-between. If they had more time together, if they had built that relationship up, and if you can see that Speed has been getting used to blowing his money and immediately getting repaid again, all of a sudden, it seems more dire. Instead, what you're left is three fights, and then, okay, suddenly everyone is throwing a fit. They don't know why they're doing this. Why should Speed care so much? Why should Cheney care so much? Can you loan me $2,000? That's what I need. Speed, you made as much as me. Dollar for dollar. Well, the way I look at it, you owe me. We used my bankroll to begin with, my money, my contact. You were a bum when I met you, and you're nothing without me. Yeah, I figure you owe me. Dumb. You say you no know to me. So what does work here? Well, first, I have to give props to Hill for reorienting the story and the script being set during the Depression. Now, I'm not saying people wouldn't fight each other for money in a more modern setting, but the fact that you have the city of New Orleans just being a character here unto itself, and that all of the faces we see, including our heroes, seem to belong to men that are all right on the edge courtesy of that very awful time and situation that they find themselves contending with. There's no place to work. There's no place to go. And thus, suddenly the prospect of getting into a slug match where you're gonna get paid. Plus, you can even earn more money for surviving that bout than a man could earn in a few months' time, possibly a year's time. And suddenly, the notion of letting some hulking gorilla beat on you doesn't seem so unreasonable. Now, I did previously mention, and I'll say it again, Bronson is great here, and I'll hold to that. But, I have to say, slighted as he may have felt being involved in this film as the number two billing, in my mind, this is a James Coburn movie that just happens to have Charles Bronson in it, and it's not the other way around. 
Speed is a marvelous character, and Coburn plays him especially well. He's a train wreck, and thus he's fun to watch. We get these hints every time he's on screen that Speed is just a man who enjoys his pleasures. Because no matter what the scenario we see him in, he's always doing something that caters to his vast appetites. Aside from being able to control when he drinks, which is still rather often, Speed is a horrible, degenerate gambler. He owes money all around town. He purposely ducks out of various bookies and creditors, and he regularly cheats on his loyal fiancé at the local bordello. All of this is done with a level of charming bravado and humor that makes it actually kind of hard to be angry at his character because he's just so self-absorbed and short-sighted. Bronson can have his near-mute role and be on the poster, but Coburn gets the interesting character, and in looking back on it now, he's the performance that people talk about and praise. He's the person that gets remembered. I would not be doing my duty if I didn't mention the amazing pathos and as well as outright scene-stealing that goes down when it comes to the subject of one Mr. Strother Martin. His playing of Poe is so gentle, so subtle, and so brilliant. Poe is a broken man. He's this throwback of genteel southern charm and chivalry who was on the right track to become a doctor, and then his horrible addictions ended up costing him his dreams and his respectability. He seemingly is such this happy manner, and his cute little aphorisms for whatever situation the trio find themselves in, all of that is just stupendous when it comes to making that character. And he acts as sort of a conscience for both Speed and Cheney on separate occasions. For my money, his greatest moments come from showing that he feels alive and happy when he's part of this cobbled-together partnership. Just belonging. And I like the scene where the trio take their dates out drinking and dancing, and Poe is using up all of his stories and charms to try to impress his date, a woman who could care less about his heritage or his stories, but Poe is just so happy to have cornered a new victim to hear him speak, and his awkward joy in finding an audience that can't leave him or tell him to shut up, it's just glorious. It's in this way that Martin plays Poe with just the right amount of hophead silly, but always keeps the audience guessing that deep down, in spite of his own illness and addictions, he's crazy like a fox, and he's manipulating both Cheney and Speed into doing the right things, all while high as a kite and smiling, sure to let us know that he appreciates being on the winning team. That's what makes the parting of this triumvirate seem so bittersweet. When Cheney hands a good chunk of his money out to both his comrades before getting ready to depart, and while Speed is grateful, 
he seems to already be openly musing that this is not a move that he would have made. Whereas Poe gets all choked up, happy to see that, aside from speed, there's yet another person in this world who cares about his well-being. And that just makes it all the more poignant and all the more touching. Sure this as far as you want to go? Yeah, I'm sure. Hey, Poe. I got a cat. Back at my place. I want you to take care of it for me. That's a lot of money. You take care of Poe. She's for a man who came to town to make some money. <laughs> You're giving a lot of it away. Forgetting about the in-betweens. I guess you filled them out all right. So I can hear you now. Chris, how was this film received? Well, quite well, actually. Columbia threw some real money behind supporting hard times, commissioning over 100,000 heralds to be published and handed out to students, filmgoers, sporting goers during national competitions. Things that would include uh, the Ali Frazier fight, as well as the LA Kings hockey games. TV ads would run before football games, and over 500 TV and radio spots were scheduled well in advance of this film's debut. When Hard Times hit the scene in October of 1975, it received a wave of positive criticism, with wild support going to Bronson. Box Office Magazine made the comment that this was a performance that widened the actor's range and supported Hill as his first time directing a picture. Favorite punching bag of mine, Roger Ebert, reviewed the film upon its release and equally praised Bronson's performance and the film itself. Murph of Variety was, at least in my estimation, a little more on the nose, calling the film a moody and vague period drama, noting that this was indeed a sincere attempt to broaden Charles Bronson, but noted that a fatal lack of a center for the script will make finding an audience difficult. He did praise both Ireland and Martin for being excellent here, however. Now, I don't know if finding it difficult would come across, but I do agree it does meander. Pauline Kale was able to put things in perspective as well, although she did also throw a little bit of cold water on the plot. She did note, though, that setting the story during the Great Depression made these characters feel desperate, and thereby it was easier to be sympathetic as an audience member with them, and that went a long way to actually making the movie enjoyable. In the end, though, what these critics thought wouldn't really matter, because the public ate it up and thus a film that costs a little less than $3 million to make, and hey, let's face it, about a million of that went into Bronson's pocket right from the beginning. It ended up grossing $26.5 million at the box office, which again, for $1975, that's nothing to sneeze at. For his part, the film served to be a great learning experience for Hill, and it boosted his street cred as an up-and-coming storyteller in Hollywood, and it gave him the juice to go on and do new projects. The success of Hard Times was quickly parlayed into Hill being able to make his second film, The Driver, with Bruce Dern and, interestingly enough, Ryan O'Neill. But that's going to have to be another story for another day. 
this film remains to this day well regarded. At least as of this recording, it's currently sitting on Rotten Tomatoes with a healthy 92% amongst critics and an 81% from the audience, which is not too shabby. But we still need more people to go out and scope this one. The film is not without some fallout, at least for Hill professionally, because for the rest of his life, Bronson would be openly hostile to both the final product and to the director. And over the years, he would keep coming back and bringing it up to Hill, especially in social situations, that his anger was there for cutting out many of those scenes between Bronson and his wife, Ireland. As the years would go on, Bronson would vacillate between hot and cold when it came to even talking to Hill. Sometimes he would acknowledge him, and they would chat like old colleagues, and other times he would just revert back to pure anger over this perceived slight when it came to making hard times. Hill would never get to work with Bronson again, and while he seems somewhat wistful about it, I think the man can agree he put his time in and he did what he could. Again, Hill has proudly stood by his work and thinks that this is a movie that will keep aging well. As he ended up stating in a 2012 interview that he gave to John Zelansny of The Hollywood Interview, he was still, at least as of then, some 35-odd years after getting residuals off of hard times, which, again, a testament to the fact that the film has staying power with viewers. People are still paying to watch it. Now, it's only me talking here, but I'm going to echo that statement. You should absolutely get out there and see the film for yourselves. If for nothing else, just to enjoy the ruminations on the bonds of friendship and loyalty that are so perfectly put on display here. There's great action. There's great, great character development. It's worth it. Now, is it a good movie? No, it's got some flaws. I can't tell you it's perfect. But it's a wildly entertaining one, and because of that, it makes it great. The version of Hard Times screened here at the LSCE was the 1999 DVD release from Sony Home Entertainment, and it comes to you pretty bare bones, with just some subtitles and a trailer being listed here as the features. Still, it's available and it's still entertaining. And with the price of $9.99 on Amazon these days, it's not something one should sneeze at. Hard Times itself has no formal Region A release by way of Blu-ray, but there is a German import version that does come region-free and is available for the low price of $15.57, also on Amazon which I would consider to be a steal if you are looking to get your street fighting fix on in the comfort of your own home. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where to buy your films. We just think it's important in this day and age that people keep purchasing physical media so that the rights holders of these fine properties have a reason to keep releasing this content, which we all know and love for our consumption. And at the end of the day, isn't that what you want? more of what you love? Besides, this is the first film of Walter Hills. It's boasting an excellent cast, a compelling story, and the kind of thing that every lover of cinema should avail themselves to. So what are you waiting for? 
get out there and get yourself a copy of Hard Times today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you back here next week as we continue our coverage of another amazing Walter Hill movie, 48 Hours. But you know what? Hearing my dulcet tones, that doesn't have to stop for you right now. Have you been wondering perhaps what it would be like to hear old Chris sit down with two lovely ladies and chat about an obscure cult film, perhaps one that features a haughty warlock who lives in a storm drain? Well, recently I had the honor of being a guest on the hilarious and fun Bedknobs and Broom Flicks. I got to sit down with Linda and Jane to discuss the 1971 cult classic Simon, King of the Witches. We laughed a lot, we got a wee bit raunchy, and we covered a rather strange film. So look for that out now, wherever you're getting your podcasts from, and absolutely give those fine ladies a listen in their own right. Again, please help us support our friends. If you like what we are doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Or, hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it here and give you a shout-out on the show. Just my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. So please, swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. I'm proud to announce we've been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street, today. We're also featured on Podchaser. It's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow. Leave us a review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to like any of the lists that we're a part of in order to give us and our comrades a boost in the rankings. The more reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms, and that makes us more searchable. And then we can share films with more people, and you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be even more personable or wish to contribute a segment in the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, please take care out there, wash your hands, wear a mask, Stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night.